and welcome to On Opinion, the Palia podcast. I'm Turi Bunte. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarization. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue, and what that means for society. Today, we are over the moon to be talking to Nicola Rehani. Nicola is a British psychologist who's Professor of Evolution and Behaviour at University College London, where she runs the Social Evolution and Behaviour Lab. Her career-long interest has been on cooperation and collaboration, almost certainly as a result of growing up amongst six siblings. We are here to talk with her about her first book, The Social Instinct, How Cooperation Shaped the World, which we'll link to, of course, in the show notes. Nicola, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on your podcast, Terry. We're interested to talk to you about cooperation because it's so critical to the work that we do around opinion and polarization and politics. Um, Democracy itself is a fundamentally cooperative, collaborative project. Um, And so what I wanted to do really is to dig in and ask you to help us understand what your work and cooperation can teach us about the ways in which we come together and the ways obviously in which we also break apart. But where I wanted to start was sort of at the at the most nano level, um, at the properly micro, um, at genes and genomes. You say something lovely, which is that um, every living thing is composed of genes cooperating with genomes. You say that every multicellular being is a collective that operates as a whole rather than a collection of parts. In a sense, individuals are already collectives. You talk of evolution inventing the individual. Can you help us understand how what we think of as the selfish gene, in fact, comes together into this beautiful collaborative working thing? Sure. Um, So the way I like to think of it is if you imagine yourself just looking at yourself in the mirror and what do you see and what's actually really there. So I think for most of us, when we look in the mirror, we see ourselves and we we see ourselves as a coherent individual. Um, you know, you know, you see yourself as a, as a whole organism standing there looking at you. And in some sense, that is true. But in fact, you're not only this coherent individual that you see standing before you, you're also a collective and you're a collective that's made up of genes cooperating within genomes and cells all working together and all um, doing their part to generate this higher level unit that we call the individual, that you call you and me and every other living multicellular thing on this planet is a feat of cooperation in that sense. And the big insight um, of evolutionary biology in the last 50 years or so has been that we can conceive as of individuals as being these goal-driven agents, but we also can view all the genes from which we're made up as being their own goal-driven entities in some sense. And these entities that have a desire, if you'll permit a very sort of non-scientific use of the word desire, a desire to find their way into subsequent generations. And, And to do that, they join forces and they work together and they make this higher level unit, which 
we call the organism or the individual. So you're not going against this fundamental idea of sort of the genes imperative, that selfish imperative of the gene. It's just really that the idea that the gene understands that to be its most selfish, um, it needs to collaborate with others. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I, I, so cooperation is often a means by which entities, whether they are genes, cells, organisms, compete and improve their position in the world. And that's very much the view that was championed very famously by Richard Dawkins in the 80s with his book, um, The Selfish Gene. So Nicola, moving from the very small back into this level, which we understand as the self, um, you and me and others, this strand that you pick up about individual units working together to better to better advance their own interests, we can see also at uh, at an individual level, at a group level, um, and you trace that back to um, a key moment in our evolutionary history, which is when we sort of descend from the trees into the plains. Is that right? Yeah. So for most of our time on Earth, um, we have inhabited sort of barren, arid, and quite difficult environments. So he, um, the modern worlds in which humans live in and our large scale societies and cities and all these things which are very familiar to the listeners of this podcast, at least, are a kind of a blink of an eye in terms of um, human evolution and the, the, the scenarios and the contexts in which we have historically and still do in some societies live on Earth. And our best guess about the environments that humans evolved in and the sort of formative periods of our evolution is that we evolved in the what's now the East African Rift Valley. And it was an environment that was pretty difficult to sort of eke out an existence in. So the, the, the climate would have been quite dry. Um, food was probably quite hard to come by. Uh, in the Pleistocene, sort of this long period during which um, humans lived in this in this area in sub-Saharan Africa, we were also surrounded by the full complement of deadly predators. We had a difficult job in a way. We had to find food and um, eke out an existence in this pretty difficult environment. And also we had to avoid somehow becoming food for some other organism that might have thought that a human looked like a tasty <laughs> bite for lunch right so and one of the ways or the primary way I should say that we think that humans were able to survive in these incredibly challenging environments is that we were so very cooperative we were so good at working together and at collaborating to defend ourselves from predators, collaborating to find food, to raise offspring. And it's really telling, I think, that when we look at the other great apes, the ones that are alive now, like the gorillas, um, bonobos, chimpanzees, none of them are really as cooperative as humans. That, that's not to say that they don't cooperate, but the extent of the cooperation that we see is nowhere near the scale that we see in our own species. What are the kind of differences we see between, say, a chimp and a, or chimps and humans when it comes to collaboration and cooperation? It's, there, there's loads of really interesting points of difference. Um, so chimpanzees aren't just uncooperative. They will help one another. And there's lots of very 
elegant experiments showing that chimpanzees will help one another in laboratory tasks to solve a laboratory puzzle if they need the help of a partner. But some of the differences that we see in, say, um, chimpanzees and humans in the extent of cooperation involve things um, around, for example, spontaneous prosociality. So, for example, if you give um, a, a human child or even a, an adult as well, if you give them a resource that they really like, like say for example, in children, you give them ice you cream. give them you yeah. give them ice creams or stickers or sweeties or something like that, and then you give them a chance to share those with um, a peer. By the time kids are hitting about six or seven years of age they often will want to share those resources with another child whereas that kind of voluntary sharing of of anything any precious resource we just don't really see that in chimpanzees chimpanzees are basically pretty focused on what can i get what's what's for me if i need you to help me i'll recruit you but i'm not going to reward you for helping me and I'm not actually that concerned whether you get anything for, from this interaction or not, but I will work with you to achieve a goal, but that's because I want to achieve something. So that's kind of like, in the book, I say the chimpanzee mindset is me, whereas the human mindset is we. And I think there is this really fundamental difference that um, we are just inherently concerned with the outcomes that our interaction partners get and that's what economists sometimes call having an other regarding preference we care about other people's well-being and other people's um, happiness and fairness and things like that and th there's just no real evidence that these kinds of concerns are felt by our closest living relatives there's perhaps two things to ask you about there one is how much this relates to what people call theory of mind and the capacity to empathize with other people the capacity to project the fact of existence in somebody else inside oneself which is a very human trait and perhaps is a fundamental part of consciousness um which i think hasn't been shown or at least is difficult to to, to demonstrate in other primate species but the other is also this other thing which is that there's always an element of selfishness here isn't there because um you, in your book you talk through the importance of reputation and actually to be considered to be a generous person, somebody who does share, is a pretty good mating strategy, it turns out, for humans as well. So it's as if that selfishness has just been taken to kind of a, a meta level. I think those points are really linked because to have a concern for reputation often involves being able to take the perspective of another individual. And that is one of the hallmarks of theory of mind is the ability to understand that how your behaviors and your um, your actions might influence the thoughts and the beliefs that are held by another individual. And you're right that there really is no evidence that chimpanzees or in fact any other non-human primate species attempts to strategically manage their reputation. Um, and in fact, this is something that even human children struggle with before they hit the age of about five years old. Even kids aren't that concerned with their reputation. And it's kind of obvious to anyone, you know, even if you don't have kids, but if, especially if you do have children, they just really don't care what you think for like quite a long time. You know, you can see it in their toilet habits and things like that. Like they just don't, they don't, they don't have embarrassment. But at some point they get to the age of about five years old and they start to, you start to see that they start to have this kind of concern about, oh, if I do this, I'll be embarrassed or I don't want to take my clothes off here because someone might see me and that's embarrassing. Or if I say this, then 
that you know that will be embarrassing and so all those kinds of self-referential or self-conscious emotions rely fundamentally on the ability to take another person's perspective and to understand how how what you're doing might influence their thoughts about you and their beliefs about you and chimpanzees just don't do that as far as we know i was going to say that as a parent uh, with children who are a little bit older i've also seen with dismay how that desire for social reinforcement can overplay this the, the reputation becomes much more important than actual personal desires and i think it's a tricky thing for perhaps adolescents so yes it is a it's a constant negotiation there um but talking of kids you flag um something which I never really thought of as cooperation, but is beautiful because it's intergenerational. You talk of teaching as profoundly cooperative and also something very much that chimps do not do, nor do bonobos, nor do orangutans, etc. Help us understand what that means. Yeah, so I think when we think of teaching, we tend to think, as humans, we tend to think of formalized classroom settings where you have an institutionalized person standing at the front, they're the teacher, and then you have a bunch of uh, pupils that need to be taught in the classroom and that obviously is one form that teaching takes but in reality teaching if you want to put a definition on what teaching is it doesn't have to be restricted to a classroom setting and in fact um, a functional definition of teaching which would allow you to look for it in other species that don't have schools and classrooms and formalized institutions like that is simply any active instruction whose function is primarily to help a pupil learn a skill that it otherwise wouldn't learn or to help a pupil learn a skill more quickly than it would otherwise be able to. The first example of teaching that was where it was a really conclusive demonstration that came from a species of ant called the temnothorax, tandem running ant. So temnothorax ants will have a nest, but then during the day they leave the nest to forage and they find profitable food patches. And sometimes they also have to move house. They have to find a new nest site. So you've got a few individuals in that species that are that are like the scouts and they go off and find the food or the new nest. And then they come back to the colony where there are thousands of other individuals and they have to somehow get the message across, like, where is it? Where are we going? Where is this place we should all be going to? So one way they can do that, the knowledgeable, the one way the knowledgeable ants can can sort of get the rest of the colony to go where they ought to go is simply by picking them up and carrying them on their back. And that is actually the fastest way to get individuals where they want to go. So um, another way they can do it so that they can recruit more knowledgeable individuals that can then um, carry the majority of the individuals to these place, these desired destinations is that they can actually teach a subset of the colony how to get to the place that they want to get to. And the way that they do this is not by carrying them on their back because the ants that are carried actually can't learn the way, probably because they're carried facing backwards, um, which is a bit weird. And also, do it. Yeah. and also the other reason why they can't learn it is that it turns out that to, to learn a route, the ants actually have to walk there themselves and they have to make a number of excursions on the journey so that they can learn the landmarks on the route and that they they then really learn the way to this place that they need to get to. And that's exactly what the the teacher ants do. They allow these the pupils, if you like, to walk behind them. And, and this is why they're called tandem running ants, because they run one behind the other, the teacher in front, the pupil behind. Um, 
and they stop several times to let the pupil make its little excursions, find out what the landmarks are, find out the way to this place that they're going to. And once the pupil has had this experience of being led by the teacher, then they can effectively become a teacher themselves. So there's basically no evidence in the ant that teaching relies on sophisticated cognitive mechanisms. It doesn't rely on what we've already discussed about theory of mind or knowing what the pupil knows um, or any of these kind of quite sophisticated forms of cognition that we think are often used in human um, teaching examples. But nevertheless, when we look for it, we see that other organisms have solved these challenges in kind of remarkably similar ways. That's a wonderful story. Um, but also is a very nice segue because in certain species like ants or bees, there, there are very, very specific roles in a sense. Cooperation is built into this superstructure of the hive or the, or the nest. I'll get this wrong, but soldier ants look different from other kinds of ants and bees ditto, etc. We don't quite have that. Humans don't quite have that. But um, if we think of ants and bees as superorganisms, how far can we go down the road of thinking of humans as superorganisms? I think, so just to back up a little bit, and I think that it is super interesting, this idea of what's an individual and what's a collective because right. we've talked about this already but like when we look in the mirror we you know if you if i was to say to you do you think you're an individual i don't know a single person in my social network who would say no i mean i think we all have this idea that we are individuals and that um something like a herd of wildebeest even though it might be a group is not an individual we think of the individual wildebeest in that herd as being individuals and yet, when we look at something like a colony of ants or a colony of honeybees, there is a sense in which it makes sense to think of not the individual ants or bees as being individuals, but of the colony itself as being a new higher unit of evolutionary organization and the colony being the individual. And when you look through that lens, when you consider these these um, highly social insects as being what we call super organismal super organisms um, what you start to see is that they these these colonies have several properties that we see in multicellular bodies like our own so for example um, in ant colonies like you've mentioned there are workers that do different jobs well, inside our bodies, there are cells that look different and there are cells that do different jobs. And there's really, on a conceptual level, there's not really that much difference between these kind of different worker castes in an ant society and the different cell types that we have in our body. Um, when you look at, um, again, if you think about an ant colony or a bee colony, you've only got one reproductive individual, that's the queen. And then you have all the sterile workers whose job is basically to just help the queen reproduce. And in some ways, that's not so dissimilar to the situation that your cells in your body find themselves in, because you only really have your reproductive cells in your reproductive organs. And most of the cells that make up your body are what we call somatic cells, and they are non-reproductive. They are not sex cells and they don't find their way into the next generation. And so I think there are a number of like really nice 
parallels between if you look at a colony and then look at a multicellular body, you see like lots of really nice examples of where the colony really functions as this kind of super organism. Um, I want to take it, of course, and the question I'm asking you is, if can we take it one level further up, which is to say, if you look at an ant colony and you have workers and you have warriors and you have queens, etc., and we look at a human society where we have scientists like you and poets and musicians and extroverts and introverts, etc., can one think of society as a colony in that sense, where all of us have evolved, where our genes have evolved a sort of collective system which is of a higher order than the individual i think the difficulty with thinking about humans as being um as human groups as being sort of nascent superorganisms is that fundamentally there are too many conflicts of interest between the different individuals that comprise a human group which basically limits the potential for those for those individuals to act as a coherent whole. So I'll just explain why I think that's the case. So if you take, for example, an ant colony or a bee colony, one of the key things about a colony like that is that they are highly related. And what that means is that the genes inside the individuals that are that uh, comprise that colony are very have have a lot of vested interest in one another. Individuals have a vested interest in helping that colony to um, replicate and to produce new um, offspring and new new queens and new workers. The same isn't true in humans because we basically aren't. Our groups are typically not made up of highly highly related. Um, groups of individuals and we're not clonal like we see in some species of aphids where the where the colony really is clone cl lots of clonal individuals and for that reason although our groups are highly cooperative I think it makes more sense to think of what biologists would call the unit of selection that doesn't preclude cooperation at a group level or cooperation that results in group benefits but it just means that it's not the case that over the entire lifespan, an individual's interests will always align with the interests of his, his or her group, because that is that is basically um, seldom the case in humans. And so, yes, sometimes it will be in our interest to do things that benefit our group. And in particular, for example, if you think about between group competition or war, as we might more often call it, we might have a strong incentive in helping our group to do well because that our survival is so caught up with the, with the with the success of our group but once that war once that between group competition finishes or once those interests are no longer aligned then individuals will often continue to pursue their own interests and so i don't think it really makes sense to think of humans as being super organismal in the same way that say honeybees are or ants um so a couple of things there uh, for the first, just a quick question, because I know it's been a huge debate in your community for the last 30, 40 years or longer, which is this idea of group selection and whether it exists. And you seem to be coming down against group selection, which was certainly as a theory was considered absolutely wrong until a few years ago. Group selection has become slightly more in vogue, hasn't it, amongst biologists as an idea? 
there's yeah so this is like a really confusing area for people that uh, and even for people that are in the field it's still quite hard to keep track of but often people talk about what we call old group selection and new group selection and the old group selection is has been completely debunked with the newer group selection which is completely accepted in in our field is this idea of multi-level selection and it's the idea that evolution can in principle operate at many different levels it can operate at the level of the gene it can operate at the level of the cell at the level of the individual or in some cases probably not that common at the level of the group and for to determine which level evolution is really acting at or to try to theoretically determine where we're going to see evolution acting at which level it helps to think about um the degree of conflict that might be occurring between the lower level entities below the level of selection that you're interested in so for example we think in humans our cells are all basically more or less identical to each other and our and it makes sense to think of ourselves in some ways as being um, entities where selection acts at a group level. If we consider that, if we consider ourselves as being groups of cells and groups of genes, you could, in some ways, make a case to say selection is acting at a group level, or what we call the individual, really, for us. But in social insects, in the honeybees and the ants, it probably makes sense to think of selection as acting at the colony level. And that's the level of organization whereby conflicts within that colony are pretty much um, absent because of the very, very high relatedness between the members of that colony. For selection to act at the group level in terms of if we're thinking about human groups and groups of individual humans, we would want to be able to show that there was basically negligible conflict between individuals in that group. And that assumption is just not very often met in our <laughs> so, own species. To, to yeah. put it mildly, <laughs> Nicola. Right. Um, yeah, no, abs absolutely. And that's, I think, where I wanted to, to take you next, which is what you frame cooperation as both our sort of our, our USP, our killer feature, but killer in two senses. It's both it's both the the cause of our success and also the great threat to it. Because as you say, we compete, we we cooperate to compete, and we compete amongst ourselves. Yeah. So I mean, I think it's important to just note that I'm not making a case here that people cooperate because they are aware of the benefits of cooperation, or that when people cooperate in their mind they have this calculating other motive that's hidden and it's a motive to compete like this isn't at all the argument but the argument is more like on an evolutionary level organisms that have cooperated um, in the past have tended to outcompete those who didn't cooperate in some contexts and so one of the key things and the point you make about cooperation is the reason why we are so successful as a species, but it could also be our biggest downfall, is that cooperation often has victims. And one really nice example of this that I found, it was a, it was a newspaper article about Uber drivers arriving at an airport and um, how the Uber drivers basically would arrive at the airport and switch off the app when they got there, because this would generate surge pricing. And then when all the passengers came off the plane and they start looking for an Uber, then 
they will basically have to pay a slightly higher price to get taken to their destination. And in some senses, how, whether you view that as an example of cooperation or not, it really depends on the lens that you look through. Because on the one hand, the Uber drivers have to cooperate with each other to agree to switch off the app, to agree to not switch it back on again before they've generated the surge pricing. So there is cooperation at one level, but there is it's also very obviously to the detriment of another set of people, which is the passengers who will have to pay the surge pricing. And I think that that's maybe one of the counterintuitive things about cooperation is that it's not always uh, it's not always something which is only upsides. Like some it, cooperation is is something is a means by which individuals improve their position in the world quite often, and because that improvement is relative, it will often be the case that cooperation will generate costs to some other individuals or, or or to some other cells if you're thinking about cooperation inside your body and things like that. So that's this fundamental thing. If all if we were truly a colony and we could think of human beings as a superorganism in that sense, then all of us would be working all the time for the collective good of all. Turns out that doesn't play. And so we're constantly competing at different levels. Sometimes it's national, you know. Edward III goes off to war against, I can't remember which French king it is, and there are two nations clashing at each other. Sometimes it's internal to society, the rich screwing the poor or the poor trying to topple the rich. Um, and sometimes it's at a smaller level. You talk of corruption or nepotism as elements of, 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 of cooperation. If I give a job to my cousin rather than the better qualified person whom I don't know, I'm collaborating, but I'm collaborating at a family, at a kinship level. So yes, it's this idea of competing in groups, competing collaborative levels, um, which is perhaps also something that you've just flagged as you describe the ways in which evolution can work at a gene level, at a cell level, at an individual level, etc. These d different levels fighting each other. Um, I'd like to take this to talk about, in a sense, the politics of cooperation, because we've spoken about the biology, where it comes from, the fact that our genes collaborate with each other. We've spoken about individuals collaborating to hunt, to teach, to um, to protect themselves as a group. But there's also a fascinating sort of story to tell about the history of collaboration in societies. And where you started is at the profoundly egalitarian nomad level of social organization. And it takes a very meandering and messy course thereafter. Can you walk us through the history of societal level collaboration in that way? So this, this is obviously like painting a picture in really broad brushstrokes. Um, but if we think about how humans evolved and how our societies evolved. What we know about the last common ancestor with humans and chimpanzees is that it probably was more chimp-like than human-like. And chimpanzee societies are pretty despotic. So you have an alpha male who uh, effectively clings onto that position for as long as he possibly can. He will have he'll sire most of the offspring not all of the offspring but most of the offspring in the group and it's a pretty sort of grim and tenuous existence to be the the alpha male in a chimpanzee society and often quite um grisly and barbaric so we're probably the earliest humans were more likely to have that kind of despotic um social structure than than what came what followed um 
next. But basically, what happened with humans is that, as I said, we evolved in these really, really difficult environments where, where basically, um, we'd come down from, we, we, we'd gone from being apes that swung through the trees to being apes that walked on the ground and walked on two feet. And that basically meant these changes in how we lived meant that we had, we were more able to also change the, the structure of our hierarchy. So one sort of very uh, glib way of putting it is that if you're, if you're walking on two feet, your hands are free to carry things and your hands are free potentially to throw things, uh, throw projectiles, not just at things that you might want to eat or at predators, but also at other members of your group. And essentially for humans, power and dominance became tied up, not just in our muscles and our brawn and how able we were to fend other individuals off and to retain a dominant position through strength alone, but in our social networks. So once you can, once you have weaponry and uh, individuals can throw uh, can throw projectiles at each other, and we're, they're we're, they're living together in these in these more cooperative groups anyway, there's a shift that takes place, which means that it's no longer tenable for a dominant individual to hold on to that position through brute force alone and there's a this transition to egalitarianism is what the anthropologist Christopher Bohm has called um, the reverse dominance hierarchy where essentially that kind of big shot throwing your weight around behavior became proscribed and um, aggressively proscribed in some cases Nick. essentially that Peter Turchin who is um, an evolutionary anthropologist talks about this z-shape pattern of egalitarianism in human societies where if we think about the last common ancestor with humans and chimpanzees it probably was more despotic than 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 human forager societies human for, which were which are actually quite egalitarian if you measure egalitarianism in terms of how many offspring that are are sired by um, the average male in the group? Is there a big disparity in the number of offspring that are sired or is there relatively equal? And, and just offspring? to open that up, just to make, just to be clear that we understand why, is that in non-egalitarian societies, one alpha will sire almost all the children and in egalitarian yeah. societies, all the men have a chance to re re reproduce, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the definition in a way of egalitarianism. If you're looking at societies before you really have things like possessions and money and all these markers of what we have of egalitarianism right. today, egalitarianism would have been measured in terms of reproductive. That's how, that is the definition in some ways, it's reproductive success. So then you have this shift to relative egalitarianism, but then we swing wildly back again to despotism with the advent of agriculture and um, with the, with as humans settled down essentially and stopped wandering around and became settled and started farming it became difficult for individuals to up sticks and leave if they found themselves in a situation where they where they were not being you know where things weren't good for them where they were not getting a good share of resources and a good share of reproductive success and that 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 transition from uh, being nomadic where you can quite easily walk away from a bad situation and find a better one to being sedentary which co-occurred co roughly with the agricultural revolution also 
is linked to then the rise of sort of inequality again in human societies and that's when you start to see massive disparity in reproductive success among males in human societies again. So we move from despotic to egalitarian and back through to despotic again with that farming moment. Where does it go from there? Where does the Z move from there? So I guess nowadays, even though it probably sounds a bit strange to say that we live in more egalitarian societies, I mean, we, we, we do live in much more egalitarian societies than many humans did at the dawn of the agricultural revolution. And I think that probably does come as a bit of a surprise in, in the sense that for many of us, we see, you know, on the news and even in our personal experience, we see that stories of rising inequality, we may, you know, have experienced that ourselves. Um, but again, it comes back to this idea of how do we define egalitarianism to some extent? Um, and when we look at the measure that we've, that we've been using throughout this kind of piece on thinking about human society, when we look at egalitarian egalitarianism as measured through differential reproductive success, then what we see is that actually we are now quite far from that, the agricultural model of, you know, eunuchs and emperors fathering thousands of children and some people really having none. And um, for the most part, the reproductive, the differential reproductive success is quite small in human, in most human societies now. And it's it's quite interesting to think about like economic egalitarianism versus uh, versus measures of reproductive success because I think on the one hand, you know, by that by the evolutionary measure, it seems like society is quite egalitarian, and I think a lot of the principles of egalitarianism that that w- that are present in contemporary forager societies and would have been present probably throughout our evolution, things like resenting individuals who um who aggressively assert dominance who throw their weight around who have more than you um having an aversion to uh inequality particularly if the inequality is disadvantageous to you like those kinds of um preferences social preferences or cognitive preferences have probably always been there but they've just been differentially kind of able to be acted upon throughout these kind of broad shifts in human human history. What we haven't spoken about, Nicola, are some of the flaws, some of the failures of cooperation. Um, And there are two I'd like perhaps to ask you about. Um, One is the problem of the freeloader, and the other is the problem, what's called the tragedy of the commons. Um, Perhaps we could start with the the second, and I might ask you about an experiment you did um, involving your sink in um, <laughs> in your office. Yeah. So yeah. So th- this experiment is one that um, I did uh, quite a few years ago now, involving the sink, as you say, in the shared staff room at the department where I worked at the time. Um, essentially, if you think about a public good, a public good is a resource that's available for all individuals that have access to it to use and often a public good is something that needs to be actively maintained through cooperation so things like a clean air to breathe is a public good or clean water to swim in in a stream or something is a public good and it can be 
polluted by individuals or organizations that uh, for reasons of expedience find it easier to act in a self short-term self-interested manner rather than to preserve this public good and another thing that's a public good in a way is a clean sink in a shared room like a tea room in a department and as anyone who's ever been in a situation where you share a sink with other individuals like that it comes as no surprise that often these kinds of public goods are quite difficult to maintain and even if they start out clean, they can often unravel quite quickly with the presence of what we call free riders or individuals that don't contribute to maintaining the public good. Um, and in this situation, we in this experiment, we basically just wanted to test what the impact of free riding was on the the state of the public good. And so to do that, I just snuck into the department early for a few weeks and manipulated the cleanliness of this shared sink, either by cleaning everything that was there and leaving it really pristine um, at the start of the day, or by adding a variable number of used items to the sink, a teaspoon or a cup and things like that. And the results are kind of unsurprising, but they offer a proof of principle of this effect that when you start the day with the with dirty items in the sink more people are likely to add their own cup a dirty cup or dirty fork or something to the sink during the day so the the presence of free riders in the system licenses other people to free ride in some way and it it prompts this downward spiral of defection whereby even people who might otherwise have been prepared to cooperate by washing up their cup actually um, are more like, you know, feel licensed to defect because they see evidence of defection there. This is kind of also the tragedy of the commons in right, a way. Exactly. It, would be, it would be best for it would it would be best for everybody if we could all agree to cooperate. We would have a nice sink. Everyone presumably prefers the clean sink. But there is an individual temptation to cheat or to free ride or to defect uh, by leaving your own item in the sink. And that cost um, is shared among everybody who has access to that public good. I'd, where... not, I'd not obviously made that link, which is, of course, direct, which is the problem, the, the tragedy of the commons, the fact that it's so very difficult to get everybody to agree to do something which is very slightly detrimental to them, but very, very positive for them as, collect, as a collective, is actually the problem of free riding at large. People often think about it in the context of climate change. Who's the first country that's going to give up on coal? Which is the first people who are going to stop taking aeroplane rides, et cetera, et cetera. It's tough. It's super tough. Um, but so I feel like your answer to the problem of um, free riders and by extension, the tragedy of the commons is institutions and its rules. It's And the way you describe institutions is very beautiful. They seem to come alive. They seem to be an, an extra moving part in the process of evolution. Tell me how you think of institutions in that sense. So I think if you think about the games of life, and often as economists, we think about these kinds of cooperative scenarios as being games in a way, and they actually are called economic games when we study them in the lab. So something like the sink problem that I just talked about would be a classic public goods game where the incentives seem to be um, it's to your own personal benefit to defect, to leave your dirty item in the sink, and um, the 
the the costs of doing that are shared among everybody and so there's this personal benefit shared costs and that can then lead to this scenario that i described where you get this spiraling defection and the destruction of the public good i think the thing that humans do that i that no other species has is able to do uh, or has has the cognition required that would be required to do is to actually change the rules of the games that nature has given us and so um we have a game we might we have several games actually that we face in our daily lives that that broadly fit the incentives of what we call social dilemma social dilemmas which is just like the tea room game that i told you about it's like deciding um whether to pick up your rubbish or, or, or throw it in the bin or take it home with you and things like that we face so many social dilemmas in our daily lives where the incentives would seem to suggest that the the best thing if you want to maximize payoffs or to maximize utility is to defect even though that actually results in the worst outcome for everybody and yet we so often resolve these dilemmas that we're faced with by changing the actual payoffs of the situation by by adding institutions um and in a way i like to think of institutions as being a bit like icing that you put on a cake so if the cake is the underlying dilemma then the institution can change the appearance of the dilemma and one institution that we have used to great effect to change the incentives to cooperate in these dilemmas that we face is punishment and so quite often uh, in many scenarios that we face informally and formally there will be a threat of punishment for failure to cooperate um, and the threat of punishment the the threat of incurring a cost for failing to cooperate can in principle change the incentives such that the payoff maximizing option becomes actually not to defect but to cooperate instead and this is one institution that humans have and do use to great effect to encourage cooperation and so when you look at the world today as we've gone through this very rapid sort of history of individual cooperation and social cooperation and the systems that we have in place what for you um, should we be focusing on to make sure that uh, we continue to cooperate in good ways and that defecting from cooperation is um, is less appealing i think actually one of the interesting things from the book is this idea of interdependence um, and it's this idea that quite often with our interaction partners we have a stake in their well-being such that it can pay for us to cooperate with them even if we don't expect cooperation necessarily in return and this is a bit of a departure from the classic view of why individuals might cooperate which was often predicated on reciprocity so um, tip for tat I'll scratch your back you scratch mine I'll cooperate with you on the premise that you're going to cooperate with me in the future and this kind of bookkeeping account of cooperation which has been really influential and is important but when we think about interdependence what we see is this shift in emphasis which is that actually in some cases where interaction partners are interdependent 
it can be in their interest to help one another and to um, cooperate with one another, even if the partner might never return that favor, because the benefit can come from having this shared stake in that partner's well-being and that partner's um, fitness. What's an example? So an example, well, anyone, if you, if you have a, if you're married, for example, and you're raising children, you'll be highly interdependent on your spouse to be able to successfully raise the offspring. And, you know, it's in your interest that the spouse is, sticks around and is able to do the things that they need to do to help you to raise offspring. Another sort of toy example that I use in the book is if you imagine that you're in a boat and the boat springs a leak and then you, you're, with a, you're with a friend and you both need to work together to bail out the water. It, it can be in your interest to do things to help your friend to continue to bail out water. For example, if you find a chocolate bar in your pocket, it can be directly beneficial to you to share that chocolate bar with the friend if that helps them to continue bailing out the water because you're, you now suddenly have a much stronger stake in, in their being able to do this thing and in their survival, essentially. And the thing that I think, to go back to your question, the reason why I think interdependence is an interesting idea for thinking about where human cooperation is going is that we aren't only interdependent in these obvious cases where it's like, oh, it's a friend or it's a, it's a spouse or cases where it's kind of really obvious that you have a stake in that individual's well-being and, and survival. We're actually, I think now it's really obvious in, in this time of um, pandemic and, and thinking about vaccines and where vaccines ought to be distributed and whether they should be kept in, a, in one country or should they be shared more globally with other countries. We're actually interdependent on a much broader scale than I think we often realize. And our fates are often intertwined with the fates of people that we don't know, that we might never meet, that might not live in our country. Um, and I think that if there could be a way to engender that sense of interdependence and that sense in which for example, sending vaccines to other countries isn't just um, an altruistic thing to do. It's actually a self-interested, rational thing to do because we are so interdependent in this situation. Um, I think that to me seems like one of the biggest interesting areas where we, where we might start to see changes in how we relate to one another and how we think about global cooperation in, in our species. That's a lovely place to wrap. Nicola, I'm hugely grateful and um, and considerably better informed on the back of this conversation. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Cool. Thanks, Thierry. Thanks for having me. That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion, the Palia podcast, wherever you listen and follow us on social media at Ask Palia. All our links are in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.